This message by Pastor Eric Ludy was given at the church at Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. As a ministry, we desire to see the return of strong, triumphant Christianity in the church today. We make these messages available free of charge for the purpose of strengthening the body of Christ and igniting bold faith in the hearts of believers around the world. The ministry of Ellerslie is made possible through the prayers and financial support of listeners like you. If you have been personally impacted by Ellerslie's messages, please consider partnering with us as we build world changers for Jesus Christ through gospel-centered discipleship. Visit ellerslie.com to learn more. Now, here's Pastor Eric Ludy. So this is session three in our Get Your Acts Together series. The title is... In Search of Elijah. I have a subtitle for it. It's a study in the important role that signs and wonders play in the church. For those of you that know me well, you know that signs and wonders uh, are not necessarily my favorite discussion point. I probably would, if it was left up to me, avoid certain topics in Scripture. I am not, by nature, a charismatic or a Pentecostal. And so, as a result... I have a tendency to want to put a damper pedal on certain things in Scripture. And as a pastor, if I'm going to teach the whole council, there is a struggle that I oftentimes face, which I think is why our pastoral leadership team picked this topic for me. Uh, At the same time, one of the things you'll see is that I don't allow my natural man to lead me in my study of Scripture. I don't allow my natural man, which wants to curb some of these more charismatic dimensions, I do not allow that man to dictate how my life is lived and what I believe. So even though I have tendencies towards a damper pedal, I also have the Spirit of God, which is always saying, Eric, what's your foot doing there? Are you willing to lift it off and allow me to play full volume here? I want Jesus Christ to be seen in this generation. And however Jesus Christ intends to be seen... I want to be a facilitator of that and not a hindrance to it. So as we go through this, this is a a challenging message. It could easily split a body. I've I've dealt with a lot of challenging messages in this room, and one thing I've learned is that as you lean on the Spirit of God and as you go with the spirit of the text, instead of divisive... uh, machismo types of statements about it where like here I stand even though it's a divisive point this is I don't care if you're offended by it my desire is not to offend and it's not to divide we are a conservative body by nature but we do have those that would lean even in their natural personality types to the charismatic and the Pentecostal sides they just love that sort of thing And then we have others in here that are more like me, in fact, a lot more like me than they should be, with damper pedal all the way pushed down. And so as a result, something like this can create a unique opportunity for us as a body to grow. So that's how I'd like us to look at it. Signs and wonders, a quick overview. So let's just go through the Bible and just get our our mind wrapped around the global understanding of this. First of all, it's important to note that God performed signs and wonders throughout the entire Old Testament. Now, if you've read it, you know that, but I want you to recognize that this isn't some work of the devil. Now, the devil can mimic, he can imitate. You know, Moses throws down his rod and it turns into a snake, and then Jonas and Jambres, as they're historically understood to be, throw down their uh, 
well, whatever they did, threw down rods, I'm not sure, and it turns into snakes, and then Moses eats theirs up. So God still wins in the signs and wonders department, but there seems to be false signs and false wonders. But it's important to note that God did these things. So the very nature of Jehovah doesn't seem to be contradicted in the notion of signs and wonders. So in Acts, we see a reference back to the Old Testament, specifically to Moses. He brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. Jesus performed signs and wonders during his earthly ministry. So not only was it in the Old Testament, but then Jesus, in the transition into the arrival of the one foretold, the Messiah, actually does signs and wonders. You men of Israel... Hear these words, Jesus of Nazareth, a man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. What a unique statement. A man approved of God among you by miracles and wonders and signs. So it seems to be that Jesus was approved as being the one who is the Messiah through these miracles, wonders, and signs. You remember what, when, it, when John the Baptist sends his guys his way, he says, are you the Christ? Go tell John, are not the sick healed? I mean, he goes and goes through a whole list of miracles, signs, and wonders. Go tell John, did I not fulfill that which the Messiah must do? The Messiah is foretold to do signs and wonders. The apostles performed signs and wonders after Jesus departed. And many wonders and signs were done by the apostles. This is the book of Acts. This is why it's made it into our series. The book of Acts seems to be the acts which are signs and wonders. It's what the apostles did. It's their actions. The church throughout the ages has performed signs and wonders. So for those of us that want to move signs and wonders back to just first century Christianity, you also have all of Christian history to deal with. And that is that through Christian history, you actually see that signs and wonders have been present in the church of Jesus Christ. Verily, verily, I say unto you, he that believes on me, the works that I do shall he do also. So, Jesus did works that were wondrous, mighty, marvelous, and miraculous. And he says, he that believes on me, which by the way includes us in this room, the works that I do shall he do also. And then he really kicks it into gear and says, and greater works than these shall he do because I go into my Father. Don't you recognize what that means? I'm going to my Father so I can give you the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit will live inside of you as a body. And as a result, you will demonstrate a supernatural life here on earth. So Origen, just to show you that throughout Christian history, this is just 200 to 230 AD, men had marvelous power of curing by invoking the divine name. They expel evil spirits and perform many cures according to the will of the Logos, which is also Jesus Christ. Richard Holt Hutton, back in the 1800s, made this statement. But whatever miracles be, history shows a great amount of evidence that such events have happened in all ages. Enthusiasm and fraud cannot be asked to account for as much evidence on this subject as exists, speaking of miracles, signs, and wonders throughout the historic church. I'm not going to teach on that, but that's just to give you an overview. So, therefore... As a result of this, therefore, signs and wonders are not a bad thing, but a God thing. So God, when he comes to do a work, doesn't seem to be sheepish about the fact that he does signs and wonders. Okay, we may be uncomfortable with it, but let's just get comfortable 
in the fact that God is fine with it. He's not against signs and wonders. He does them. We see in the book of Acts that the apostles prayed for signs and wonders. Now, Lord, behold their threatenings and grant unto thy servants that with all boldness they may speak thy word by stretching forth thine hand to heal and that signs and wonders may be done by the name of thy holy child, Jesus. So we actually see that the apostles, when in a state of fear, I mean, we just had Peter and John beat up uh, for preaching the gospel. They come back and the saints rally afresh. This is after Pentecost and they pray and this building is shaken and they're filled with the spirit of boldness. But they pray for something very specific, that the power of God would be evidenced in and through their lives. And that God, in his name, in the name of Jesus Christ, would do mighty works. Therefore, they appear to be something that is added to the believer by prayer and petition. And then in Mark chapter 16, Jesus speaking right before uh, the end, uh, we see a key to unlocking the position of signs and wonders in our lives as believers. And these signs shall follow them that believe. In my name, this is Jesus speaking, shall they cast out devils, they shall speak with new tongues, they shall take up serpents, and if they drink any deadly thing, it shall not hurt them. And they shall lay hands on the sick, and they shall recover. Now, I don't know how comfortable you feel with that passage, and that's beside the point. It's the Bible. It's the inspired word of God. And it says that these signs shall follow, follow them that believe. Now, the reason we struggle with this, let's just be honest, since those signs usually don't follow us, we don't quite know what to do with this. And so we have a choice to make. Either the word of God is incorrect or it has ceased in its operation. In other words, God doesn't function this way anymore. Or there's something wrong with us. I want to default to always not putting the blame on God. But to say, God, is there more that you intend in us? And that's a premise point that I just want to lay out there before we start, is that just because you have not seen something either healthy or you've actually never even seen it functionally in your life does not mean God doesn't intend to do it. God has given you something at his cross that maybe many of you in this room have never taken a hold of. That doesn't mean he didn't give it. Just because you're not filled full of the Holy Spirit doesn't mean he hasn't given it. You can have a sword at your ankle and be bopped in the nose daily by the enemy. And one day you awaken to the fact that there's a sword there. And if someone said, do you have a sword at your ankle? You should say, true, that's solid doctrine, dear brother. However, knowing that there's a sword intellectually and actually reaching down and using the grip that you have to grab a hold of it and then actually swing it with functional exercise of obedience in your life is the difference between life and death. And I would say that many of us know of the power of God, but we haven't quite known how to grip this thing. So let's begin our message here. So the name of this was In Search of Elijah. Now there's a reason for that, you, that you'll begin to understand. First of all, Elijah in the Old Testament is a symbol of power. And so when we understand the life of Elijah, most of us would understand him as like a chief prophet. And so what works that he did? I mean, this man prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years on this earth. I mean, a single man prayed, and it didn't rain for three and a half years. I mean, he literally controlled governments uh, by doing that. 
This man raised dead people to life. This man called down fire from heaven. All right? Big and impressive stuff. Signs and wonders, yes. In search of Elijah. I mean, would you want Elijah back? I wouldn't blame you. And what I'm going to do in this message is I'm going to say that Elijah is not actually the biggest deal. There is one that follows Elijah that is greater than Elijah. And ironically, many of us don't even know who that is. Now, most of you would say, I think he's talking about Jesus. Well, technically, you go back to the book of Kings and you're going to realize there's an actual character that follows Elijah. That was greater. Elijah is what we're going to call, so these are the players in the story, a first work of God. And Elisha, the one that follows, is what we're going to call a second work of God. Now, I'm not talking today, for those of you that are all familiar with the second blessing uh, in those types of statements, it's actually not what I'm talking about. I'm not trying to divide up how we appropriate uh, Pentecost today. That's actually not necessarily the format I'm taking. The Bible is broken into twos all throughout it. You always have a first and you have a second. I mean, just look at how the Bible's even built itself. You have an old covenant and you have a new covenant. You have a first and you have a second. Jesus is the last Adam. He's also known as the second man. And yet there was a lot, 77 generations of people between Adam and Jesus. And yet he's called the second man. You see, the first is Adam. The second is the last Adam, Jesus. So you have the flesh and you have the spirit. You have Cain and then you have Abel. You'll notice that God does not receive the offering of the first. You have Ishmael. You have Isaac. You have Esau. You have Jacob. The second is the one that God accepts. You have Saul. You have David. Then look in the wilderness. You have Moses. Moses is just Moses. Yet who follows Moses? The second, his name is Joshua. Ironically, the same name is Jesus, Yeshua. And the one that follows is the one that actually brings the people into the land flowing with milk and honey. Moses can't do it. The first can't save you. The second is the one God's pointing to all throughout the Bible. You can have the old covenant, but the new covenant is the one that saves. And so as a result, it's always the second that God is pointing to. That's why I'm saying I'm not talking about a second blessing here. I'm talking about a first work and a second work. The old covenant would be a first work. The new covenant would be a second work. Adam would be a first creation. And then the new creation in Christ's blood is a second creation. Okay? And so it's the second that God is always pointing at. We have another character, which is a group, but it's the 50 sons of the prophets. They're looking on. And we're going to call those believers. The reason is they've been convinced of something. They witness something, and it causes a faith to rise within them. They're witnesses of the handoff from first to second. So they're going to see something. Elijah is going to bequeath something to Elisha. There's going to be a transfer, a handoff. Elijah is going to authorize and endorse Elisha, the second. And when he does, he leaves. Elijah is going to leave. And now Elisha has the power, has the mantle of Elijah. And there's some witnesses to this. Okay? So this is going to play into, I, don't, I know, it's way, way back when. And yet it actually matters to us today. So here we are in 2 Kings 2. And 50 men of the sons of the prophets went and stood facing them at a distance. While the two of them stood by the Jordan. 
So you're going to notice that the Jordan seems to be a place of handoff. I mean, just look at where Jesus was baptized. Just look at where Joshua parted ways with Moses. Okay, right here. So the first seems to hand something off at the Jordan. And one crosses the Jordan and the other one doesn't. So you have a wilderness on one side, which is where the first is. And then you have the land of promise on the other side, which is where the second is. And so they see this. The 50 men of the sons of the prophets witness something. So the two, Elijah and Elisha, are there. And now Elijah took his mantle, rolled it up, and struck the water. And it was divided this way and that, so that the two of them crossed over on dry ground. And so it was when they had crossed over that Elijah said to Elisha, Ask. So I, my mental picture of this, let's go over into the wilderness here. They've crossed over, and Elijah seems to be led of the Spirit of God right to where he's at. He takes his mantle, strikes the water, it parts, and they move over into the wilderness. And so now they're on the far side of the Jordan, and Elijah asks, or says to Elisha, ask. Doesn't that sound like something Jesus would say to us? Ask. He says, ask what I may do for you before I am taken away from you. Elisha says, please let a double portion of your spirit be upon me. Now, if you were being asked by the mighty prophet who raised dead people to life, stopped the heavens for three and a half years from raining, called down fire from heaven, uh, you know, he says, ask. What are you going to ask for? I, I, I almost feel tongue-tied, like, ah, it's almost like Elisha knows what he's after. And I, to be honest, every time I read this, I am convicted of how small I ask. I mean, I would have never thought that there was even more power that Elisha had. I mean, who's going to think of asking for a double portion of the spirit that is upon Elijah? I mean, could you imagine even conceiving that there's more than what Elijah had? So Elijah said, you have asked a hard thing. Nevertheless, if you see me when I am taken from you, it shall be so for you. But if not, it shall not be so. So, how will Elisha know if he has a double portion? If he sees Elijah being taken away. Then it happened, as they continued on and talked, that suddenly a chariot of fire appeared with horses of fire and separated the two of them. And Elijah went up by a whirlwind into heaven. Mm -hmm, it happened. Listen to this line. And Elisha saw it. Is that an accidental line? It's very, very purposeful. You know, it's not an accident that the apostles, the disciples' apostles, saw Jesus ascend into heaven. Not an accident. These are all parallels that go back to these types of stories in the Old Testament to let you know there's been a handoff. My father, my father, this is Elisha crying out, the chariot of Israel and the horse and its horsemen. So he saw him no more, and he took hold of his own clothes and tore them into two pieces. He also took up the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and went back and stood by the bank of the Jordan. Then he took the mantle of Elijah that had fallen from him and struck the water and said, Where is the Lord God of Elijah? And when he had also struck the water, it was divided this way and that, and Elisha crossed over. Now here's the believers looking on. Now when the sons of the prophets who were from Jericho saw him, they said, the spirit of Elijah rests on Elisha. And they came to meet him and bowed to the ground before him. You see, there's a handoff, and those that witness the handoff recognize that the second has the authority. 
The first has transferred something. He has given something, an authorization, that the second is now the key lead. And so what you see is a pattern in this. We mustn't follow after a first work. So I am going to liken signs and wonders to a first work. And I'll explain that as I go. But what you're going to see is there's first works and there's second works. The first works, not like we kick Elijah and say, you stink. Elijah has a role. We don't kick the old covenant and say, this is ridiculous, you know, and spit on it. No, it's actually that which authorizes and points to the validity of the second. Without the first, you wouldn't even know that the second is valid. Jesus fulfilled the entire old. He matched it perfectly like a puzzle piece. And as a result, we say, he's the one. And the old actually says, no, no, follow him now. No, no, he's the one. What do you think John the Baptist said? When Jesus came, he doesn't say, yeah, keep following me. He says, no, 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 no. No, no, he's the one. I need to decrease. I need to get out of the way so he can be seen. So we mustn't follow a first work. Now look at our tendency. As believers, we are so impressed with the first work. We are so delighted in the first work that we want to stay in the first work. And we don't press on and mature. And so what you see is a unique pattern that is delivered to us because the Bible only covers certain ground. Loads of history. Even the season that Jesus was on the earth, the apostle John says if all that he did was written down, the world couldn't even contain the books. That's just one man's life, let alone all of history. So what is written is written on purpose. Every word can be measured. Every word matters. The Spirit of God carried along writers to give us a very specific message. So why are we going to hear what we're about to hear here? So Elijah is taken up. Elisha crosses back over the Jordan, and now the 50 come to him. They have seen it. They know what has happened. They watched it. But they sort of miss Elijah. Then they said to him, Look now, there are 50 strong men with your servants. Please let them go and search for your master, lest perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. And Elisha said back to him, You shall not send anyone. But when they urged him till he was ashamed, he said, send them. Therefore, they sent 50 men, and they searched for three days, but did not find him. And when they came back to him, for he had stayed in Jericho, he said to them, did I not say to you, do not go? So what you see is this unique pattern, that when the second comes, we have a tendency to still want to go after the first. And you'll see that many uh, that are of the Jewish uh, lineage have a love for the old, that it's hard for them to know how to appropriate the two. How do you move on from a life under law to a life under grace and yet not kick the memory of the old and the first? These are some of the great challenges and the perplexing issues that Christianity has faced throughout the ages. When God works. When God works, there's always a first work and there's always a second work. The first is always lesser. Just the principle of Scripture. I'm not just trying to give my personal opinion on it. That's just the way it is. So let's look at the book of Acts, and let's do the players in the book of Acts. I'm going to give you two players. Signs given, which would be a first work of God, and souls added, which we'll call a second work of God. Which one's greater? Signs given? You know that you can raise a dead man to life, and that guy can still go to hell? What? What? 
what have we accomplished? You see, actually, the greater work is the souls that are added. But those souls were added in response to something, in response to a first work that pointed and said, do you see it? This is authenticated. This message is, in fact, true. And that first work authenticates and points to the second work so that people do believe. And so it's not the absence of the first work that we're looking for. It's the presence of the second. Then they that gladly received his word were baptized. And the same day there were added unto them about 3,000 souls. Well, what preceded this? We have a mighty work. It's called Pentecost. Pentecost comes and we have tongues of fire. Remember this for all of you that have a damper, have a foot on the damper pedal. And you're like, whoa, whoa, whoa. He's about to mention tongues. We have a supernatural work that is taking place where people from all over are come to Jerusalem to celebrate, ironically, the giving of the law, the giving of the first teacher. That's what the law is. It's the first teacher. And that's why they're there. They're there celebrating, yes, the wheat harvest. It's Pentecost, 50 days measured from Passover. But they're there celebrating the giving of the first. And in comes the giving of a second. And its first annunciation is rather mysterious and marvelous and odd because people from all over that speak different languages are hearing a message of the glory of God in their own tongue. So it strikes them, it awakens them, it sharpens their focus. And then what follows? A clear word from Peter. Peter didn't get up in front of the assembly and speak gibberish. He spoke a clear word. You see, the clear word follows the miraculous that oftentimes is not understood. If all you had was signs and wonders, it doesn't lead you anywhere to any proper conclusion unless those that have the signs and wonders make it very clear who it all is about. The friend of the bridegroom. So John the Baptist is one of the greatest pictures in the Bible, if not the greatest picture, that God always precedes his work with an initial work. God's great work, when Jesus came, the great work obviously was the cross. But even in his work, he had a first work of signs and miracles, and then he had the great work of the cross. And then all throughout the church, you actually see, and then you have the cross and the resurrection, now you have the church, which is even a greater work of God in and through his people. I'm not saying it's greater than the work of redemption. I'm saying it's taking the work of redemption like a mantle and clothing us with it to do something that is even beyond. You know that Elisha was given a double portion that even biblically speaking, Elijah's miracles can be added up and totaled. You get a little mathematical total there. And then Elisha's can be. You know that when he died, he had exactly double minus one, the miracles? And so he's laying in his tomb, and some guys are carrying around a dead body, and they don't know what to do with it, so they throw it into a tomb. And the guy pops back to life. It was Elisha's tomb. God's like, double. Exactly double the miracles. Isn't that amazing? And so what you see is that those that follow are actually doing even a greater work. The friend of the bridegroom. Simple principle, when the second comes, the first steps aside. And he, John the Baptist, preached, saying, There comes one after me who is mightier than I, whose sandal strap I am not worthy to stoop down and loose. 
So John is going out of his way. John is an incredible symbol of one who is in the wilderness. It is a symbol of the first. That's where he lived. That's where he did his preaching. That's not accidental. It's on one side of the Jordan. He meets Jesus at the Jordan. He authorizes him and baptizes him. Very symbolic of Moses unto Joshua. Very symbolic of Elijah unto Elisha. It's a passing off unto one that will do a greater work. And when John's time comes to an end, he's silent. He's silent. I mean, John, literally, if you look at the story, he goes silent. It's time for Jesus to speak. He must increase, says John the Baptist, but I must decrease. The first, when the second comes, must find its proper place. It does not mean that the first was bad. Jesus goes on and on and brags about John the Baptist. He's not criticizing him, and he doesn't teach us to criticize him. He doesn't teach us to criticize the law. The law is not bad. The law is good and righteous. It just cannot save you. It has only power to reveal your sin and no more. It cannot rescue you from your sin. As a result, the law is a schoolmaster, a tutor that says, there's your answer right there. I can only show you that you need a savior. But your savior has now come. So here's some first and seconds. Law and grace. So the law revealing his righteousness, his otherness, his holiness. So when the law was given, what we see is that God is communicating in and through his word. And he's going to give a revelation to men. So what's the first thing that he teaches us? He teaches us that he is holy, holy, holy. That's how he starts. Why wouldn't he start with, I'm loving, loving, loving? Instead, he starts with, I'm holy, holy, holy. The first work of God is law. So that we would recognize and appreciate and approve the second. So the law is going to reveal his righteousness, his otherness, his holiness. It's a schoolmaster, the one who points, shows, illuminates the second. It shows divine power, but is unable to save. Everything about the law is divine. No one in Israel was questioning that it came from God. Written by the finger of God upon tablets of stone. I mean, flashes of lightning and peals of thunder. Moses is up there 40 days and nights without eating or drinking. The guy is just supernaturally sustained. He comes down with a face aglow. What is this? Everything about that wilderness experience, how in the world are you going to criticize and say, oh, God had nothing to do with that? He sustained the people for 40 years. Their shoes didn't even wear out. He fed them from heaven. Yes, it's divine. Grace, revealing God's ability to make us righteous. So God shows us his righteousness, but then grace shows us how he makes us righteous makes us otherly and makes us like himself. Grace is an enabler. It's the power to do it. It's salvation itself. It is divine power and is able to save. The law is unable to save. It can only point you to the second, which is able to save. We have the first, which is Adam. It's made of earth, earthy. And the second, Jesus, made of heaven, heavenly. Old man, when the second comes, put off the first. Why in the world are you lugging around your own ability, your own capacity, your own discipline and willpower? Put off the old. Put on the new man that is created for you in Christ Jesus. Saul, David. Saul is anointed by God. It's, it's, it's an improper thing to say that Saul was just a bad guy. I mean, I'm not saying he went right. 
But I'm saying he was anointed by God. He was selected for the job. And, but he's insufficient. Goliath comes uh, and he's boasting. And guess what? Saul doesn't do anything. You ever thought about that? For 40 days, what's being proven in Israel? Saul can't do it. You know that Saul, it says of Saul that he was head and shoulders above all Israelites? He was Israel's giant. This guy was a massive man. And so Israel had their giant. Philistines have their giant. All right, giant of Israel. Why don't you go out and take care of it? The first can't save you. It's only the one that comes in the power of the Spirit, the second. On day 41, after 40 days in the wilderness, Jesus comes in the power of the Spirit into the beginnings of his ministry. Everything is purposeful. David is anointed by God and able to save. The second is able. The first only shows the need for the second. The Old Testament, it's written in Hebrew. As a result, it's hidden, shadow and type. Only the Hebrews would know the Hebrew. It was hidden. It was localized. And it was mysterious. The rabbis could speculate, but they didn't understand what it was saying. They knew the words, but they didn't know. Which is why Jesus was crucified by the very people that knew it. In other words, in and of itself, it doesn't save. Though the words are divine, they are given by God. They are meant to lead you to the second, which is clear. It's open, it's tangible, it's touchable, it's relatable, it's the real thing. John the Baptist says, I am not. Jesus, they picked up stones to stone them. Why? Because he said, I am. He literally gives the ineffable name of God and declares that he is. He is Jehovah. He is the Son of God. The first points to the second. The second is the answer. Parables. So when Jesus is doing his ministry of firsts, what's he give? He gives a little blurry testimony. It's like, why don't you speak clearly to us? We don't fully understand what you're saying. And then what do we have as the extension of his ministry? We have the epistles. And they aren't just clear, they're uncomfortably clear. Many of us try and blur them and say, well, it's just really hard to understand what John is saying. Here, no, we know what he's saying. Even a child could understand what he's saying. Tongues, it's not understood. It's a first work. Prophecy, it's understood. You see, look at 1 Corinthians 14 afresh. What Paul is doing is he's correcting the church for their misuse of the first. Like you have this first, there's nothing wrong with the first. Paul's not kicking the first saying it's wrong. He's saying you're misusing it because you're thinking that by doing the first, you're edifying the body, but the body is edified by a clear word. So if you have a tongue but don't have a translation or interpretation for it, don't give it. You see, if there isn't a clear word, that doesn't benefit us. You see, it's the second that builds up the church. It's the second that we emphasize in our midst. It's a clear word of exhortation that builds. There are tongues in the book of Acts in the streets of Jerusalem. But without the preaching of Peter, you do not have 3,000 souls added. There needs to be something that clarifies so that people can respond. Signs and wonders. I'm going to liken them to a first. Sealing signifying the presence of divine power. When there are Holy Spirit signs and wonders being done, it causes a cessation of tongue for everyone watching going, oh, yeah, that's ridiculous. That's Whoa, how that happened. In other words, it actually begins to awaken and alert people to the fact that there is something of God that is taking place. 
But soul salvation is the greatest work of divine power. God is not just interested in impressing us. He's interested in saving us. And so if you could do all these things, these wonderful things, but have not the real end goal of God, what good are we accomplishing? Number one, this is going to be a unique application. The joy of salvation, the result of childlike faith in Christ, we'll call that a first. In other words, when we first come to Jesus Christ, there's an amazing work, and many of us want to always return back to those, those years. It's like, oh, when I first came to Christ, I want God, could you bring me back to that? Because I want to take you into something far better. The joy of sanctification, the show of continued obedience to Christ. Any of you that have a matured relationship with Jesus and the abiding fellowship with him, don't just want to return to first things. You want to keep moving forward into a greater maturity of fellowship and intimacy with Jesus Christ. I don't want to go back. I want to go forward. However, if you went off the rails right after you had your initial joy of salvation, I don't blame you for wanting to get back on the road. And if that's what you mean by it, I'm in full agreement with it. The first prepares everyone for the Passover lamb. This is an interesting uh, process throughout Scripture. But what you see is in Acts 7, I read this scripture earlier, and he brought them out after that he had showed wonders and signs in the land of Egypt and in the Red Sea and in the wilderness 40 years. So what we see, and look at the ministry of Moses. It has two works. First, he has signs and wonders in the land of Egypt. And then what? Passover. You see, Passover and the blood of the lamb upon the doorpost and the parting of the Red Sea and the leading forth in victory and liberty it's a two-step process. So we have signs and wonders supplied to Pharaoh, all Egypt, and all Israel. Everyone can witness it. Then the blood of the lamb, the deliverance, the baptism with water, and the giving of the helper. So this is the pattern in the Old Testament. It's the exact pattern of what Jesus did. So what you have is signs and wonders that are literally supplied by the ministry of Jesus, and then you have the blood of the lamb, the deliverance, the baptism with water, and the giving of the helper, the Holy Spirit. In other words, what you have is the fulfillment of the old. Remember John the Baptist, the first? Look at what he said. He points towards Jesus, and he says, Behold, the Lamb of God, which takes away the sin of the world. Behold, the Passover. Behold, the Paschal Lamb. There he is. You see, the signs and wonders are that which is first points to the Passover Lamb. It points to it and says, There's your answer right there. The first points to the second. Three options for handling the first. So when we get to a topic like signs and wonders, I'm not sure. It'd be fun maybe one day to actually get your response to these topics that I awkwardly fidget through. Uh, you know, some of you are like, Eric, just speak more confidently. None of us have a problem with all these things. You always think that half our audience is having troubles and wanting to stick their foot on the damper pedal. I think you're the only one. It's probably why God put me up here. You guys would be out of control uh, without it. <laughs> However, it'd be interesting to find out if you were to just sort of slice this up, get us you know, out you know, in, in some kind of uh, form where we could answer questions. Where are we at? Well, there's, I'm going to give you three options for handling these first things. Like the way you oftentimes handle tongues is oftentimes the same way you handle healing and the same way you handle signs and wonders of any kind. Because they're all a sign and a wonder, if you want to say it that way. So you're either inclined towards that, or you're not. But then if you're truly desirous of a biblical mind on it, you can't just cut out half the New Testament and act like it didn't happen. It's there. 
So if I truly am going to be humble and submit, I have to say, God, you're right, even if it's uncomfortable for me. And even if I've seen the abuse of it and I've seen it twisted and gnarled over here and here, your version isn't twisted and gnarled. I can trust you. So three options for handling the first. We could ignore it altogether. There's entire denominations that go out of their way to ignore it. And there's, uh, there's a propensity. If I was going to just like choose which way I would go, I would more likely stumble in that direction. Okay, that's just me. And some of you would stumble in the second one, which is overemphasize it and make it more important than the second. You know how many churches make the uh, baptism of the Holy Spirit the most important thing? They make the fruit of the, I'm sorry, the, the spiritual gifts and tongues the most important thing, when in actuality, Christ is still preeminent. And if the Holy Spirit is active and working, who's he going to tell you about? Himself? Jesus Christ. The end game of the Holy Spirit is Jesus Christ. So if the Holy Spirit is working in our midst, he's going to lead us to Jesus, not just to himself. However, you would not have seen Jesus without the Holy Spirit. So it's not the absence of it. It's just recognizing his role is to point people to Jesus. Whenever you end up building a church around spiritual gifts instead of Jesus Christ, you have yourself a mess. If you are pursuing the first instead of the greater, instead of the second, if you do not decrease that which needs to be decreased after it's done its job, then you end up with chaos. So here's our third option. Allow it to serve the greater by announcing the all-importance of the second. So for me, as I walk through this, I say, tongues, signs and wonders, healing, they have a place. And there's a biblical context for each one of those, but they are meant to serve something greater. So it's my job not to decrease them in the wrong way, but to find that spot for them, like a fire. Okay, a fire is a powerful thing. You could either put it out or you could let it burn down your house. Those are two options. Or you could put it in the fireplace and keep it where it's supposed to be so that it warms the whole house. You see, that's the way this is. If it has its proper context, it actually adds beauty and glory to the entire house, but it's a servant role to warm you instead of to rule you. Mount of Transfiguration, understanding the role of the first, which is to authenticate the second. So let's go to the Mount of Transfiguration. For those of you that uh, know about it, we have a mountain in Israel where Jesus and three of his disciples, Peter, James, and John, are. It's in the middle of the night. And the strangest thing happens. We have Jesus transfigured before them, turns into like this bright white in all his glory, and then Moses and Elijah appear. Uh, now, you could ask the question, like, how did they know it was Moses and Elijah? I can't answer that with what's in the text. All I say is they knew it was Moses and Elijah. And they're, like, conversing. Now, here's what's amazing. Then there's also a third witness. It's God the Father. And so we have three witnesses of the person of Jesus Christ here, that he is from God. Who are they? Well... In a sense, they're all firsts, if you want to say it that way. You have literally Moses, who is the symbolic of the law, the first that came before Joshua. Then you have Elijah, which is a first, who came before Elisha. And both of them function just the way John the Baptist did. They point at him, and they say, he's the one. 
You have the whole old covenant basically coming together on top of a mountain and saying, there he is, guys. Did you see it? Did you witness it? This is our man. The Old Testament sets the pattern. So let's look at the pattern of the Old Testament, which talks about the, the fact that there will be a first that will herald the coming of the second. Comfort ye, comfort ye, my people, saith your God, speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem. So the first 39 uh, chapters in Isaiah have been rather rough, uh, been full of judgment and woe. And now suddenly we sort of move into a whole new season in Isaiah, into a season that seems to herald very clearly the comfort that will come from this Messiah. Comfort ye, comfort ye. Speak ye comfortably to Jerusalem and cry unto her that her warfare is accomplished, that her iniquity is pardoned, for she hath received of the Lord's hand double for all her sins. The voice of him that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make straight in the desert a highway for our God. So we're beginning a process of actually discussion in Isaiah of this Messiah. And it's going to become very clear to us who this Messiah is and what this Messiah will do. Isaiah goes into such amazing detail. And what we see is that there is one, a voice that cries in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord. Now, most of you would say, oh, that's, that's John the Baptist. And you'd be right. There is a first that will come. Behold, I will send my messenger, and he shall prepare the way before me. And the Lord whom ye seek shall suddenly come to his temple, even the messenger of the covenant whom ye delight in. Behold, he shall come, saith the Lord of hosts. Behold, I will send you Elijah. What a strange statement. Elijah's long gone, guys. He went up in that chariot of fire. I will send you Elijah. I will send you the first. I will send you a messenger, a first messenger the prophet before the coming of the great and dreadful day of the Lord. What, a, what an interesting statement that is. In Malachi, this is right before the 400 years of silence, and then kaboom, Jesus comes on the scene. Listen to what Jesus says. And if you are willing to accept it, John himself is Elijah who was to come. Jesus is referring to that passage in Malachi and saying, hey guys, if you will accept it, John the Baptist is that messenger. He is the voice crying, prepare the way. Don't you see it? Elijah's a first and we needed a first, a messenger who would come and herald because that's the way God works. He always has a first work and a second, and the first points at the second. The first from the wilderness authorizes the second. Prepping the way, working over the hardened of heart. The first prepares the way, establishes the authority of the second, and then quietly steps aside. So in the context of signs and wonders, the wrestling match that I deal with in this is first of all, I recognize that I, there is some greater measure of strength and power that I believe the church is supposed to be walking in. I do. And so I can go on record and say that I believe that what we are currently functioning is not the fullness. It doesn't mean I don't esteem the fullness. It doesn't mean I'm trying to put a damper pedal and hinder it. It just means that, and I'm not blaming that on God. I'd put the blame right here. In fact, I'd put it first on me. God, am I a hindrance or am I helping? I want to be a conduit of what you're desiring to do in this world. So issues like this come up then. So how am I supposed to appropriate this? I don't want to squelch what God is doing, but I don't want chaos to rule in the church of Jesus Christ. So the first prepares the way. And I'm recognizing signs and wonders have a place. And that is to prepare the way for people to see clearly, to authenticate 
the goodness of the gospel, the credibility of the gospel, that this one who hung on a tree 2,000 years ago and was deemed a criminal by those who killed him is actually the son of God. And they're like, well, how am I supposed to believe that? Well, maybe this will help. In other words, a sign and a wonder helps authenticate that which is being spoken. But when it's done doing its authentication, it's not what still lingers. It's not what we need. For instance, let me see if I can prep you for this. You shouldn't need, as you're progressing in your spiritual life, shows of smoke and lightning bolts. You see, you should be able to walk with God without any big noise. You know the God who makes big noise and is able to do great things. And for the sake of a dying world, you're willing to walk in that strength. But not necessarily for your sake. As you mature, you begin to be stronger and stronger in your faith, knowing that what the word of God says is true. Whether or not you see a, a smoke go and you see a lightning bolt or a fireworks display over here. And that's the maturing of a believer. God, in a sense, sometimes quiets in our life so that he can prove our faith and grow our faith in and through small things instead of big things. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. Now, this is the classic. Some of you are thinking, why in the world would Eric bring up this? This is 1 Corinthians 13, which has been a great debate point in the church of Jesus Christ of something known as cessationism of like, well, are the spiritual gifts for today? And then people will use this exact little argument of Paul to say that all of those signs and wonders, all of those uh, miraculous movements of grace that many people would say should be common in the church are no longer common. They are uh, unusual attributes. It doesn't mean God can't work in power, but he, we shouldn't expect it. And so what we see is an argument that Paul is making. It's still the Bible, by the way. For those of you that uh, prefer your tongues and are ready to defend it, I'm not trying to attack it. I'm also saying let's not throw out what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 13. But when that which is perfect is come, then that which is in part shall be done away. The old covenant was not complete in and of itself. If it was sufficient, there would not have been need for a second. So when that which is second comes, that which is in part isn't needed in the same regard. In other words, the way we appropriate the first covenant now is very different as believers than it would have been if we were Jews living in ancient Judea. When I was a child, I spoke as a child, I understood as a child, I thought as a child. But when I became a man, I put away childish things. When the second comes, when maturity comes, when manhood comes, well, don't keep messing around with childish things. And so what you see is a foreshadow of growth and maturity, both in maybe the history of the church, that's definitely a possibility here, but also just for us, as we appropriate first things. Remember what the argument's going to be in the next chapter? Tongues and prophecy. And that's why people get skittish around this. Like, whoa, whoa, wait, don't mention that. Paul is rebuking a church that is still stuck in first things. Guys, these, this group's under the law. This group is you know, running around with their, you know, like chickens with their heads cut off. Liberty, liberty in Christ. And what they need is first things. Guys, the evidence of God truly changing you is love. Let's, let's get this thing together, okay? Yes, you have a tongue. I speak in tongues more than all of you. It's wonderful. However, it's not edifying. There's no building up of others. 
You're stuck in a first work instead of progressing and allowing God to mature you to be an instrument of change for the world around you. Let's grow up, guys. When the second has come, we don't go and seek after the first. So when God is establishing a second work in you, you don't need to go after and search the mountains to see if Elijah has been dropped somewhere else. In other words, for you as an individual, you're ready to grow up now. You've seen it. There's been a clear testimony to your life. That does not mean that God will not move in miraculous ways to build your faith. However, he's building it with miracles, signs, and wonders in order that you can rest in faith instead of wrestle for faith in your soul. Many of you have spent seasons, you're just saying, God, are you there? God, I, I, I sensed you were there yesterday, but I, and you're unstable because of it. God wants to grow you up to not need a big fireworks display to suddenly feel confident that God is there, but to be able to rest knowing, even if your boat's filling up with water, he's over there sleeping. So what do you do? Well, a mature Christian actually pulls up next to him and starts snoring with him. That's what a mature Christian would do. Now, most of us are not there. We're young Christians bailing water right now. And yet, God wants to mature us where we don't need to see something in the natural to be believers. But that isn't to say that God doesn't move in the miraculous still. It's that there's two different works. There's a work for an unbeliever and a new believer, and there's a work for a maturing believer. And so as we handle this issue, we need to recognize what its role is. Please let them go, says the 50 sons of the prophets, and search for your master, lest perhaps the Spirit of the Lord has taken him up and cast him upon some mountain or into some valley. No, no, we have to have these movements in our church. Otherwise, you see, it's an interesting tension that I have. We need power. We need a greater measure of something here. We need something of old to change us today. The church is unable to awaken a lost world in our own strength and our own ability to share the gospel. This church is passionate about winning lost souls, and yet we're powerless to do it unless God breathes. We need whatever that breath is. And when that breath comes... There is something that will follow us. There are certain evidences that are meant to follow us. There will be a changed world around us in our wake. Have you ever heard it said that signs and wonders follow them that believe? Yeah, we read it earlier. I remember uh, one missionary said it this way. That means we don't follow them. They're supposed to follow us. The problem with many of us is we follow signs and wonders. We are looking for circus acts, entertainment, instead of recognizing God doesn't dish that out. God is a humble God. That's shocking to us. When he comes to this earth, he's born to a poor couple in a dinky little town laid in a feeding trough wrapped in peasantry. That's the sign to the shepherds. That's how you'll know him. He's humble. And the way that God is going to demonstrate himself in and through us as a church, he's going to be laid in a feeding trough and wrapped in peasantry. That will be a sign to the nations. What we think would be the right sign and wonder, he won't do that. It's funny how God works. Okay, let, let's set ourselves up for this. Moses is coming in to speak to Pharaoh. All right? 
All right? He has his rod, which is sort of pathetic. He's like, wait, God, give him something bigger than that, a bazooka or something, but a rod? So he throws it down, and it becomes a snake. And we're like, God, I mean, that's good, okay? And I don't want to criticize what you did, but come on. You're God. What are you going to make? So I don't know if you guys have heard me talk about this before, but I've been pondering Godzilla. Throw it down, and he eats Jonas and Jombres, and then picks up Pharaoh, and then Moses says, yeah, so let my people go. And, and Godzilla's like, ha. Ah. And what's Pharaoh going to say? Just take him, just take him. That's our sign and wonder. In other words, what we want to do is not necessarily what the Spirit of God is wanting to do. Our job is to submit both those of us that are uncomfortable with these sorts of things and also those of you that are just wanting them. We still need to be harnessed and reined in by the Holy Spirit. And what the Holy Spirit wants to do will be done. But it may not look exactly the way we would prefer it. We may look a lot weaker in the process. We may have to be humbled before the nations, before God can use us to truly win the nations. Are you still seeking after Elijah? Are you still seeking after a first? Are you still thirsting to go back to something original instead of moving on to what God has called you to? Which is greater to you, the physical wonder in the natural realm or the spiritual miracle of salvation? Which is greater to you, the healing of the physical body or the healing of the inner spiritual man? Those are hard questions, too, because it's like, well, God, if we had the healing of the spiritual body, that would be so impressive. It would be. But did you know the greater miracle still is God saving a man, rescuing his inner life, convincing him by the power of the Holy Spirit unto a full assurance of faith to be a believer and to be filled with the Holy Spirit. And now this becomes the mechanism of grace. Someone could be healed and go away unchanged in their soul. It's a great miracle, I have to admit. And I hope it affected someone, but it didn't change the man. God is interested in adding souls. Which is greater to you, the spiritual gifts or the manifestation of love one unto the other within the body of Christ? If we could choose one, imagine if we had to make a choice. Praise God, we don't need to. But it's like, okay, we could have spiritual gifts in here, guys, and they would be robust and beautiful, or we could demonstrate love one unto the other, and it will truly be a heavenly love. I know, the heavenly love just sounds weak comparatively, but I'm here to tell you, the heavenly love one unto the other is the greater work. It's supernatural, and that's how you will know Jesus' disciples. That's how. Not by signs and wonders, but by the second work that seals them. The first authenticates and says, listen to these guys. But then what you truly see is a love, one for the other. Doesn't mean the first is wrong. Which is greater to you, the initial exuberance of your newfound salvation? Listen to this. Or the ever-maturing life of undying fellowship with your Redeemer? See, that exuberance when you first come to Christ is something very special. However, what I'd like to tell every single one of you is it only gets better. What I'd like to tell every single person that's getting married is, wow, the beginnings of marriage, like the, the, the courtship, the love story, the, the I do's, the kisses, the honeymoon. Wow, it's amazing. And it only gets better. It's the second work of marriage. Look at, look at Jesus' first miracle. In the Jewish culture, they bring out the best wine, and then it gets bad. After that, I guess people are a little goo-goo, and they don't notice. What does Jesus do? He says, hey, guys, you have someone new at your wedding. 
He brings out the better stuff as it progresses. He says, let's do it my way. You see, this is how even marriage works if it's born in the kingdom of heaven. It gets sweeter, more precious as you progress. Let's not stop short with first things. The principles of improper emphasis. When we place our focus on the first work, we unwittingly diminish the greater work. If you keep following after John the Baptist, you're going to truly miss what John the Baptist's whole life was about, and that's about the Messiah. When we diminish the first work and we don't listen to John the Baptist, guess what? We're going to miss what John the Baptist was pointing to. And so either way, we can lose what God is about, and that's a proper appropriation of that first work. Don't overemphasize it, but heed it and listen to it and allow it voice to move. A life lived in the second. The first work, signs, wonders, and shows of power. The second work, faith, assurance, trust in the God of all power. You see, many of us have seen signs and wonders and shows of power. I have actually seen a lot of amazing things around the world. I have. And yet, I don't need that when I wake up today to rest assuredly in the God of salvation. I don't need it. No, it's not that I'm against it. It's just, in fact, for many things, I'd like to have more of it, but for their sake, not for mine. I'm fine if no dead people are raised to life. However, I want dead people raised to life. Why? For them. Paul wanted to go to be with God, but for their sake, he'll stay around. That's what moves us. I want a first work for them so that they can progress to a second, but I would do them a disservice if I locked them into a first work and I said, camp out here. No, the reason you've been awakened is so that you could mature. The reason John the Baptist came and told you to repent was so that you could believe in the one he pointed to. The first work, awe and inspiration. But those two things don't save you. The second work, confidence, rest, and obedience. Confidence in Christ, faith, resting in his work, and then obeying it. It's a greater work than just being awestruck. The use of the first work in our Christian witness. The law is a schoolmaster. Because the law is a schoolmaster, it teaches a soul. You can use it. That doesn't mean you're under the law, but you can definitely use it. And so when you use the law, it actually works as a tutor unto someone else to show them their sin. That's what it says. Wherefore, the law was our schoolmaster to bring us unto Christ, that we might be justified not by the law, but by faith. But after that faith has come, we are no longer under a schoolmaster. So if you have the schoolmaster, it leads you to faith in Jesus Christ. And when you come to Jesus Christ, then what does the law do now? Well, it no longer has that position in your life because now you've entered into the rest of Christ by faith and his righteousness is yours, not the work of the law. The law of the Lord is perfect in converting the soul. So therefore, why don't we use it? If the law actually works to convert a soul, see what this is basically saying is the first work is built to help convert. That's what it's there for. The law of the Lord is perfect, converting the soul. Remember, signs and wonders will follow them that believe. Gulp. I don't know how many of you are excited to have signs and wonders follow behind you, but we need that. If you're going to preach the gospel, you want to preach it in power. Paul didn't come with grand words. He came in power. I don't know that we exactly know what that means. And I think we need to know what it means. 
the mysterious tears. So it was a graduation, and something had happened here on the stage. I don't remember what it was, but it deeply moved me. And so I was in the back, and I was moved. Have you ever been moved, but you don't know exactly what to say about it? If someone said, why are you moved, Eric? It's like a CNN interview. Why are you moved? <sighs> and you're just sort of choking and, you know, sniffling. So I was in the back doing that, and then suddenly I realized I'm supposed to close. And so, very awkward. I mean, some of you can just be praising God that you don't have to get up and close all the time. I'm always having to close in awkward moments. You know, his little feet choir is always doing something. I'm sniveling, doing various things, and then they look at me like, it's your, your time. I'm like, what? And so I come up here, and it was, God was doing something in me. And all, all I did was cry for, I don't know, it could have been a minute or two that I was up here crying, awkward. And every, other people were crying. Have you ever noticed that when someone cried? I mean, it was obvious. Everyone knew God was moving, but no one knew what it was. It was the first work. In other words, we're all moved. We all see that it's God. We know it's divine, but no one's really edified because there's no clearness of why we're crying. What is God doing? And so after about a minute or two, I stopped. It took me a while to be able just to articulate something. And then I said what it was that was taking place inside of me. That's what edified. The first is precious. There's nothing wrong with the first. But it's actually the second that builds us stronger. If all of us just get around and cry all day long, but we don't actually have a clear word of truth that we believe in and put our confidence in, we're not better for it. That which moves me moves you, but it doesn't necessarily give you a tangible takeaway. Rather, it readies you to receive the concrete reality of that which is ever tangible to our souls. Jesus Christ. Whatever the mysterious work is, signs, wonders, miracles, uh, words of knowledge, tongues, however you appropriate those, they're mysterious. Those mysteries are not meant to be left without interpretation. They're meant to lead us to the interpretation because everything leads to one singular interpretation and his name is Jesus Christ. So whatever takes place in the first, it's meant to authenticate and back away and say, there's your man. Let him speak to you. Every first work. So when we're appropriating signs and wonders, I want us to not disdain them. I don't want us to put the damper pedal on them. I want them to play full volume, but within their fireplace. I want us to discern where they're supposed to be and how they are meant to edify us and not hinder us. So in summary, the first work has a role. It's to point to the second and greater work. When the first work has accomplished its purpose in the life of a new believer, it must decrease. But as that new believer begins to grow, the new believer will learn to utilize the first work, just as it was used in his or her own life, to point unbelievers to the second work. So therefore, though I may perform signs and wonders as a minister of the gospel, they're not for me. They're for them. I'm not pursuing them, but I ask for them that they would believe. I want a first work to authenticate the message of a second work that I have to give. It's called the good news of Jesus Christ. It is a greater work. My burden is that we don't hear truth today 
but that we enact truth. And when you're dealing with something like this, and I need to create a framework, it's easy to have a truth that informs instead of a truth that performs. I want us to crave a second work in our life. I don't want us to hang around waiting for some big movement uh, of grace like this room shakes before we start boldly stepping forward in the truth that we do know. At the same time, we need a shaking of this room. And we need a shaking of the church of Jesus Christ around this globe. I don't know about you, but uh, my discernometer is saying that our nation is getting worse even though this ministry is chugging along. This ministry isn't halting, isn't changing the direction of our dying world. The church at large is not changing the direction of anything. We're trying to stem the tide. I'd like to change that. I'd like to march on gates of hell instead of just hope that they don't march on us. We have things taking place in our country right now which are not just disconcerting. They are a signal to us. You want a sign and a wonder. We have signs given us that darkness is taking hold of the leadership of this nation. Darkness is taking hold of the leadership in the church because this is not the fruit you bear if you fear God. Something is wrong and may it not be wrong in us. May we allow God to purify us. May we find that place on our face where we are ready to repent instead of clocking our tongues at anything out there. I would say, God, start here, right here, right now. We hope you have enjoyed this message by Pastor Eric Ludy, delivered at the Church of Ellerslie in Windsor, Colorado. Feel free to make copies of this message, but do not charge for these copies or alter their content in any way without expressed written permission. For more information about us or to help support the ministry of Ellerslie, we invite you to visit us at ellerslie.com, E-L-L-E-R-S-L-I-E.com. Please know that you are not alone in this battle for truth, and we are cheering you on down the narrow way of the cross.